0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti, thank you as always for listening. I'm flying solo again for today's pod, which will be to review our win over Sampdoria on Sunday. This will be another short episode, I just wanted to give you a few quick thoughts on the match, so let's get right into it. As I'm sure you're already aware, Napoli won the match 2-0 on goals from Victor Ossiman and Elif Elmas. The match started with a tribute to the two Sampdoria greats Siniza Mihailovic and Gianluca Vialli, who both sadly lost their battles with cancer over the past few weeks. There were a number of tributes actually, starting with a moment of silence. If you're wondering who was with Dan Stankovic holding up the jerseys, I asked Steven Kashevich who joined me for the preview of this match and Steven said that the man holding the Viali jersey was Sampdoria president Marco Lanna, and the boys standing alongside Stankovic were Mihailovic's sons. Stankovic admitted after the match that he got so emotional that he had to actually go back into the tunnel, which is perfectly understandable. Prior to that, Napoli showed their respects. Giovanni Di Lorenzo led Giacomo Raspadori and Salvatore Sirigu to place two bouquets of flowers behind one of the goals at the Marassi. Naturally, with Viali's passing being more recent and given his status as probably the greatest player to ever wear a Sampdoria shirt, he received a few extra tributes. The Ultras unfurled a banner that read simply, Bomber, Campione Legenda, or Killer Goal Scorer, Champion, Legend. It was all very emotional, the pouring rain in Genoa was fitting given the circumstances, a little bit of pathetic fallacy there. Really, the only thing that was missing from a Santoria perspective was a positive result, even a draw would have sufficed given their place in the table, now Napoli is a difficult opponent on a good day, let alone when you concede two penalty kicks and play half the match with only 10 men. So let's move on to those three incidents, because the Italian papers made it seem like Napoli were handed this win on a silver platter, and I tend to disagree. The one decision that I think we were a little bit fortunate to get was the initial penalty for the foul by Muru on Anghisa. I think the initial tackle was shoulder to shoulder. It would have been a very harsh decision toward a penalty for that. So really, this decision comes down to whether stepping on another player's foot constitutes a foul. And for me, that is a bit of a judgment call for the official. There's no doubt that Muru steps on Angisa's ankle or his foot. That's clear as day. But as far as I could tell, Muru was simply running alongside Angisa. It looked to me that the way Angisa fell, his leg just ended up perfectly in the path of Muru. Now, if you've listened to this show long enough, you would have heard me say that intent does not matter when it comes to fouls. So that could well be the reason why this penalty was ultimately awarded. Muru did stomp on Angisa's foot whether he intended to do it or not. I just find it a bit harsh because I don't know how Muru is supposed to avoid it in that situation. His eyes are on the ball. If Muru's foot is actually pointed downward, then he probably trips over Angisa's foot and the foul goes the other way. I also think it's a bit of a slippery slope to give a penalty like this because, at least in theory... Attacking players can win penalty kicks by intentionally putting their foot in. Obviously, there's a disincentive to do that because you also risk serious injury. But we often see situations where players stick their feet in right before a defender clears the ball, and instead the defender inadvertently kicks the back of the attacker's foot, and those are always given as penalties too. So I guess I understand the decision. I might have actually talked myself into changing my mind on the penalty But I do think it was a very harsh call. Now, Matteo Politano took the penalty kick and was stopped by Emil Audero, so perhaps you could say that justice had been served. This ignited quite a big debate about who should be taking the penalty kicks for Napoli. Between Serie A and the Champions League, we've already been awarded 10 penalty kicks this season, and so far we've missed 3 of them, which is not a great conversion rate at 70%. Zielinski and Osimen both missed in the Champions League, so this was our first penalty miss in Serie A. Personally, I have no issues with Politano taking them. He scored his previous three attempts, this was his first miss, and it wasn't a terrible attempt. I think Audero did really well to get enough of a touch on the ball for it to hit the upright. The zone interviewed Spalletti on the pitch after the match, which is what they always do. And the reporters sort of suggested to Spalletti that Napoli are disorganized when it comes to taking penalties. You might have seen that video floating around on social media, but Spalletti wasn't particularly fond of the comment. In fact, he made the reporter tell him that Napoli are organized. Spalletti added that he allows the players to choose who takes the first penalty, which is something they are capable of doing. Clearly, Politano is one of the more confident players when it comes to taking the penalties. However, Spalletti chooses who takes the second penalty, and he chose Elmas. It was clear that the players understood that as well. We saw Osiman grab the ball and hand it to Elmas. Elmas also confirmed in his post-match interview that he knew he would be taking the second one, which he converted quite confidently. Elmas was our 6th different shooter this season and the 5th different goal scorer from the spot, which is a lot, but it makes more sense when you consider Spalletti's comments that I just mentioned. As critical as I've been of Elmas, I do need to give him credit here. He's only played 5 league matches from the first minute and he's now scored in 4 of them, so it seems like Spalletti knows exactly when to play Elmas, and Elmas has stepped up when he's been called upon, despite the comments he made earlier this season about being on the bench. A quick comment on the foul leading to that second penalty. I don't think there was much debate on this one. I don't like the rule. I prefer the old ball-to-hand rule, but the rule is quite clear. If your arm is in an unnatural position and the ball hits it, then it is a handball. In this case, Ronaldo Vieira's arm was clearly away from his body when the ball hid his hand. Going back to that idea of intent, there was clearly no intent to handle the ball, but based on the current definition of a handball, he still did, in fact, handle the ball. The other somewhat controversial decision was the red card on Tomas Rincon for his foul on Victor Ostiman in the 38th minute. I have no doubt in my mind that that was the correct decision. I thought it was a reckless tackle by Rincón. He just lunged towards Osemen who was clearly past him. There wasn't a whole lot of contact, but there was contact. And it's important to remember that when you're running as quickly as Osemen was running there, all it takes is a slight touch to completely take the player out. When I talk about intent not mattering, what I really mean is that you can still commit a foul even if you don't intend to. This was almost the opposite case where I think Rincon had every intention of taking out Osimen, and he just barely touched him. I think it's also important to note that Osimen was clear on goal had he not been tripped up, so Rincon took away a very clear goal scoring opportunity. Some people were suggesting that it wasn't a clear opportunity given the angle from which Osimen was attacking the goal, I can appreciate that perhaps the likelihood of Osiman scoring from that angle is lower than if he was running straight down the middle of the park. The target is smaller from an angle than it is from straight on, but it was a clear goal scoring opportunity nonetheless. So I think the red card was the correct decision, and that really tipped the scales in Napoli's favor. I'm not convinced we would have won this match had Rincon not been sent off, because I thought Sampdoria were playing quite well up until that point. By my count, they had 6 quality chances to score in the first half, which was a real negative takeaway for me from this match. We've only played 2 matches since returning from the World Cup break, but in both matches, we looked very shaky at the back. Almost all of those chances came from errors from our back line. Giovanni Di Lorenzo is a fantastic player, but he had a dreadful first half. Three of Sampdoria's chances were directly from the Lorenzo turnovers. In the ninth minute, Valerio Vera picked his pocket before playing Sam Lammers into the area and we were fortunate that Lammers missed the target. Then immediately from the ensuing goal kick, Di Lorenzo lost the ball again. It actually happened so quickly that it wasn't even caught live. The broadcast was still showing the replay of the previous chance when it happened, but Algello dispossessed Di Lorenzo at the edge of the Napoli area, squared it to Gabbiadini, and he got a shot off, but it was a pretty weak effort that missed the target. And then just past the half-hour mark, Di Lorenzo played a really dangerous ball into the middle of the park. It was intended for Anguisa, but Rincon intercepted it. Fortunately, Gabbiadini missed the target again, Gabbiadini didn't really have a very good game at least as far as finishing goes. Two of Sampdoria's other chances were the result of Lammers outdueling Kim Min Jae in the 13th minute, the first was the shot by Vera, which he struck first time from outside the area but Meret did really well to push the shot away. Then on the ensuing corner kick, Bram Neutink won a free header in the area and didn't miss the far post by much. Finally, Lammers had a chance about midway through the half after Augello bumped Angisa off the ball in the midfield, but Lammers' shot sailed over the bar. So all six of those chances were directly the result of Napoli turnovers. We saw how many chances we conceded to Inter midweek, particularly in the first half, so that is something that I am a little bit concerned about. The other criticism I had of this performance was that our finishing was not as good as it needed to be, by my count, we created about 10 good chances, and yet, up until the 82nd minute, we had only a 1-goal lead. I was not comfortable with that lead at all. As we saw in the last two rounds, anything can happen with only a 1-goal lead. We saw Lazio take a 1-goal lead against Lecce and lose 2-1. to one. They had a 2-goal lead against Empoli, and they tied. We saw Inter blow a 1-goal lead to Monza, and we saw Milan blow a 2-goal lead to Roma we're fortunate that Sampdoria are not a very good team so even though they created chances they didn't take them and then the red card pretty much killed the match but even against mid-table teams we will need to be more clinical than that because a one goal lead can be lost very quickly although in fairness we have been very clinical this season we have the most goals scored in Serie A and in the Champions League and we're averaging 2.6 goals per game in all competitions. So for now, I think this is just something to keep our eyes on. Going back to Victor Osimen, he was the man of the match for me simply because of the important contributions he made. I mentioned the red card already. That play showed exactly how valuable Victor is to this team. It was just a simple long ball forward that he turned into that red card. He also opened the scoring in the 19th minute, becoming the first player in Serie A to reach 10 goals. There's still one match to play before the midway point of the season, so barring another injury, he is on pace to score 20 goals this season. That was a classic Spalletti team goal where we moved the ball from our own corner to the back of the Sampdoria goal without Sampdoria getting a touch on the ball. In fact, it was very similar to the build-up to the first penalty kick. We completed 8 passes in the build-up including passes from Politano and Osimen, who both dropped very deep to show for the ball and kept it turning. That was another thing we saw quite often especially in the first half when it was 10v10 where all three of our forwards were tracking back to either help defend or to show for the ball. The play that led to the goal concluded with a gorgeous connection between Mario Rui and Victor Osiman. Once again, Mario Rui delivered a perfect pass into the area. Both Mario Rui and Osiman got their timing absolutely spot on. Victor just needed to get a touch on the ball to direct it into the top corner. For Mario Rui, it was already his sixth assist of the season. Only Sergei Milinkovic Savage has more assists than Mario Rui with seven, which is really remarkable. Jared Delafeu has six assists as well. Shout out to Sam on Twitter. She messaged me during the Inter match to say that though Oliveta was doing okay, we were really missing the crossing of Mario Rui in that match. And I think Mario Rui proved Sam right with this cross which was very similar to the pass he made to Giovanni Simeone in the win over Milan. Okay, the last thing I want to touch on is Kim Min Jae. I often tweet my thoughts on the first half, and one of the points I included for this game was that Kim Min Jae is the best defender in Serie A, so naturally he did not return for the second half. A lot of people were speculating what that could be about. The obvious explanation was that it was an injury, given the score was only 1-0 at the time, though some people thought perhaps it might have been a tactical change. Spalletti confirmed after the match that Kim's muscle tightened up, so the medical staff recommended removing him as a precautionary measure. Playing him could have resulted in a serious injury. That's left us all wondering whether Kim will be available for the Juventus match on Friday. Other than the media speculation, which has been all over the map, there has been nothing from the club on Kim's condition. He hasn't been mentioned in the training reports, which usually means he's doing the full group training, but he wasn't in any of the 4 or 5 pictures they posted from the training sessions either. A part of me thinks that even if he was hurt, A part of me thinks that even if he was hurt, the club would stay silent to force Juventus to prepare for both situations, with Kim in the lineup and without. I think the best indicator up until Spalletti's pre-match conference will be the training reports, so keep an eye on those. The good news is Amir Rahmani played well off the bench, so I think he will start against Juventus with or without Kim. Fortunately, Juve aren't exactly an attack-minded team, especially in the first half. They tend to push forward more in the second half, so maybe we can get by with Rachmani and Juan Jesus. Okay, that is where I'll leave it. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore 5 And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Pod. You can also find more great content on our website at fortsanapolypress.com. I will be back very soon to preview that match against Juventus on Friday. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli Semper! Sports Social Podcast Network.